Good morning, everyone. And I just got to say, Mom, Babe, Jen, Mom, Lori, Babe, Jen, I love you both. You're both amazing mothers. My mom is wearing a, a muumuu or a dress that she wore when she was pregnant with me. So it's amazing. I was more prepared first service in terms of gifts. I had a flower for my mom. But I'm trying to think right now, like, what I could do. Do you guys want a new iPad? Let me get some, or a guitar, maybe? You know. So something that maybe not everyone knows about my mom is that she is a huge extrovert. If you know her well, you know that. Like, my dad's ideal evening is sitting in the basement, eating chips, watching NCIS. My mom's ideal evening is like, let's go to the Clippers, and then let's go to the Hazelmeyers, and let's see how many people we can talk to tonight. And if you had to guess who I take after, be my mom. I am proudly a social butterfly, okay? And some of you are gagging right now, like, I hate social butterflies. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, we would go to parties together, and, you know, we would walk in the room together, right? But then I would do my social butterfly thing, and it was like, sorry, babe, there's a lot of people I want to talk to, I want to connect with. Oh, I haven't seen that person in forever. Oh, I'd love to swap stories with Paul over here. And there's Josh. Oh my gosh. Like, hey, hey, hey. And I'd be in a room for 30 minutes and I'd have 40 conversations with 40 different people. And none of those people would be Jen. And it'd just be like zooming around the room, meeting people, catching up and swooping back to Jen, uh, finding her in the exact same place I left her talking to the exact same person when we started, uh, when we got there, because she's an introvert. And then back off to the races. I'm zooming back around the room. Hey, what's up? Hey, pal. You know, I'm connecting and, and swimming around the room. Well, for the wives in the room or the introvert spouse in the room, you probably know how my wife was feeling. It didn't take long before she expressed to me, first very kindly and mercifully, and then with increased intensity, how much she disliked going to parties with me. And how much she disliked kind of like entering into social spaces with me. And the reason was because I was placing a higher priority on expressing my extrovert connecting self than on honoring my wife and connecting with her. You see, something incredibly important had happened in my life. I had gotten married. And after you get married, everything in your life comes under submission to your marriage. First it's under God, but then it comes under your marriage. And you rethink and you retool and your behaviors need to be nuanced and adjusted and changed. Because um, this is now the kind of defining moment, defining priority of your life. Well, you're welcome for the free marriage advice, okay? But <clears throat> what I want to say is that what we're going to see in the passage I'm going to read and explore today is that 
because of the Jesus event, and you know what I mean by that is Jesus' birth, his ministry, his life, the way he did life, the teachings he gave, the miracles he performed, and then also his death and what his death accomplished, his resurrection, this is the Jesus event, okay, that's what I'm talking about, his resurrection, and then his ascension, and then him sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, onto us. Because of that, everything changes. Everything needs to be reevaluated. All behaviors, all mindsets, all practices need to be rethought in light of Jesus coming. I like to think of it like this. Jesus abolished, fulfilled, and transformed things. He abolished, fulfilled, and transformed things. He abolished the dividing wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile. You no longer have to um, change all of your customs and obey the Levitical law in order to be God's people. You just have to trust in his son and, and declare your love and your allegiance to his son and you're in God's people. He abolished that, that separation. He abolished the curse of man ruling over women. He abolished that. He fulfilled tons of Old Testament prophecies, right? All these expectations and all these um, prophetic predictions about what, he, what would happen and what he would be like. He fulfilled all that stuff. The Old Testament law, this whole code of living that was supposed to keep us on the right path and honoring God, Jesus brought fulfillment to that. It's not really right to say he abolished it, he fulfilled it. And then lastly, he transformed things. A really good, clear example of this is, who feels transformed after putting your allegiance and trust in Jesus? Like, who really stunk and sucked, you know? But then you trusted Jesus and now you're awesome and you're amazing, okay? And I just wanna say this, if you're in the room and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we think you're pretty amazing too because you have the image of God in you and you are valuable, you are loved. But our humanity got transformed, okay? We became new creations. Well, I'm gonna be honest with you and tell you that there's something I wish had been abolished, but it actually just got fulfilled and transformed. Fasting. <laughs> the spiritual practice, the spiritual discipline of fasting. Oh, how I wish that had been abolished, okay? Today, I'm gonna practice the opposite of fasting with my family. We got some Filipino food for dinner coming, incoming, okay? Who wants some pancit? Anybody ready? Um, so man, like, I don't know if you can relate to me or not, but if I'm just being honest, fasting is tough. It's a little bit of a groaner, but Jesus has transformed it into something even more beautiful than it was before. It was already really great. It was already really um, natural to humans, but Jesus has transformed it. He's transformed it from something that we did in anticipation to something we now do in hope. We used to fast in anticipation of God fixing the world and setting the world to right and bringing beauty and joy and justice. But now Jesus came. He brought beauty and joy and justice to the world and he wants to bring it through us. And so we don't fast anymore because we're confused and desperate and, and hoping that things will get fixed. We're fasting because we know Jesus came and fixed everything and we get to be part of the solution of things continuing to be fixed until he returns. Yeah. So we fast in hope. 
I love how Scott McKnight puts this in his book, Fasting. One thing that distinguished early Christians from other groups who fasted was body hope. Christians fasted because they longed for Christ to return to establish the kingdom of God. Flattened into a generic category, their fasting is personal embodiment of hope. In other words, sometimes we yearn so much for what we know God wants for this world, and sometimes we become so depressed over what our world is like in light of what God wants for us that we are compelled to fast. Such fasting is body hope. We embody our hope by protesting the present conditions of this world. We embody our hope by protesting the present conditions of this world. Father, let that be true. <laughs> put grace on us, put grace on your people to fast and to fast from a place of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I'm being honest, I've had a very love-hate relationship with fasting. Okay, when I first rededicated my life to Jesus and I went all in for him, I was around people who fasted and I dipped my toes in it and I tried to do it. This is like 2009, 2010. And um, it was just a confusing, kind of like disorienting experience for me. I, didn't, I never had my head really around it, you know. I felt a decent amount of shame if I didn't fast long, and then I felt performance if I didn't know the exact reason that I was fasting. It was just like this confusing experience for me. Well, I wanna share with you kind of like the moment that I got breakthrough on fasting. And it was a, through a conversation with a friend and mentor. And this conversation happened in December of 2020. It was in 2010 that I gave my life to Jesus. It took 10 years <laughs> for me to figure this out, okay? And I'm still obviously figuring it out. But I just wanna say, man, like, keep going, okay? There's things in the Christian life that we give up on too quickly. And luckily, I was around people who were going for it. That's the only reason I kept trying to fast, because I was around people who did get it and who were doing it, so I kept going. So like, really quick shout out to community. I mean like, we're not gonna grow, we're not gonna make it if we're on an island. Tangent over, none of that, just keep going. Um, so in December 2020, I got, my I got a breakthrough about fasting. I got incredible clarity for, it's just, it was like a prophetic word to me, uh, my friend's text. His name's Steve Manuel, awesome guy. He helped to start the Crossroads Movement that's been that's swept over our region and led thousands to Christ. So in December of 2020, I was texting with him, complaining and whining about fasting, and here's what he said to me. Uh, well, I can cure that right up in a jiff. Yes, it's intrinsically good for us to not eat for, speci for specified amounts of time. And then he gives me a sermon because he's a preacher. So he gives me six points. It tr number one, it trains us to be strong against the demands of our flesh. Number two, it separates us from the world and its messages and rhythms. Number three, it humbles us. Number four, it exposes, it exposes our impatience, self-love, self-concern, and self-pity. Number five, it's actually good for our bodies. Physically, it's good for our bodies. 
Do you know this, that you have both living, healthy, helpful, awesome cells in your body, and you also have dying zombie cells in your body. And when you eat, both of those cells are getting fed. When you stop eating, neither of those cells get fed. And so those zombie cells that are just dying, this is part of being human, they die faster. There's actual literal health benefit to fasting. And then number six, and finally, here's what Steve said. And this is longer, okay? So just, here we go. It preaches a little sermon to ourselves. And here's the sermon. I'm Jesus's disciple, and that will cost me. I will suffer for his sake, and I will not be deterred. My flesh is not my master, and I will train my spirit to, ref to respond first to his word and not my cravings. I will pray when I can see no answer coming. I will meditate on his word when I feel no goosebumps, and I will crucify this flesh even when it seems to be doing no good. I'm not in this for effectiveness. I'm in this to follow my king down the road of suffering he walked. I am a follower, and this is the way of my forebears and of my master. Somebody run. Like, who wants to just get a, go home and burn all their food? Like, I'm ready to go, you know? Like, let's do this. When I read that, it just spoke directly to so many things that were disoriented in my mind and heart. And for, the first thing that hit me was this. It separates us from the world and its messages and rhythms. Just think about how much advertising we experience related to food. Think about how central food is to life, how addicting and how and, and engrossing it is. You're like, you know, the biggest idols in my life are Sour Patch watermelons, <laughs> okay? Bourbon, not in a drunk, not in like I get drunk way, but just like, I love it. <laughs> um, Chipotle. Like, these are the idols that I need to cast down from the high places and burn. You know, this is the Asherah pole in my life. And when we choose to not engage with those things, we're actually reorienting our day around something different than food. What do most people orient their entire day off of when they will eat? When we don't fast, we're saying, no, I orient my life around my king. I'm reminding myself that my sexuality, I orient around my king. My political views, I orient around my king. How I do my finances, how I do marriage, all that stuff, it all starts with reorienting our stomach around our king. If you can reorient your stomach, you can reorient anything through the power and help of the Holy Spirit, through his grace. And then the second thing he said was this, I'm not in this for effectiveness. Oh, I love that. I'm in this to follow my king. I am a follower, and this is the way of my master. So man, who's ready just to jump up out of their chair and be like, let's go! Like, who is ready to do this? Some of you are like, nah, you still haven't convinced me. Well, I have 25 more minutes to convince you, okay, to give up your lunch today. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, my hope and my heart is that as I continue, you would really keep your heart sensitive to the Spirit of God. Because He's hovering. He wants to speak right now. He's in the room. He's real. He's a person. And He wants to speak to you and to you and to you and to me and to you and to you. And all probably something different. 
but we need to be present with him. Lord, what are you saying to me? And then how can I obey it? What can I do to follow your voice? So God, I, just, I pray you'd release that. Help us to have ears to hear your voice. Courage, and right now I just bind in Jesus' name the religious spirit and um, demonic spirits that want to distract us or that keep shame and condemnation, especially around fasting. And fear, I bind you fear and I command you to shut up in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I go into today's passage, let me just hit some practical parts of fasting. In uh, September of last year, September 4th, 2022, Luke gave a really good message on fasting. It was called, And Whenever You Fast. And Whenever You Fast. You can find it on YouTube or the podcast, um, but it is really good and it covered a lot of stuff that I'm not gonna cover. I basically took his best things and put them in mine, and then I added some of my thoughts, okay? But there's a lot of stuff he said that I'm not even gonna touch on, but that's really important and helpful. And so I'd encourage you, like, go back and find that, and maybe as a follow-up to today, listen to that message this week. And whenever you fast, September 4th, 2022. Covers a ton of stuff I'm not gonna cover. Okay, so here are the two really important practical things I wanna hit before the passage. Number one, the difference between motivations to fast and the potential effects of fasting. And number two, I wanna give us a good, clean, proper definition of fasting. So let's start with motivations versus positive effects. I got motivations up here, hope, mourning, focus, dependence, consecration, obedience, maturity. And then potential positive effects, answered prayers, Increased authority over the demonic and sickness. Increased intimacy with God. Increase in fruits of the Spirit. Bodily health. So here's the thing, my friends. The only thing that's guaranteed to happen when we fast, that's guaranteed, is to get hungry. You can bet on that. That will happen. But if we fast for that second category, we're missing the heart of fasting. We don't fast to get something from God. You don't fast to get a lower interest rate on your mortgage. You don't fast to get the person to marry you that doesn't want to marry you. You know, you don't fast to um, get the healing or whatever. Like, that's all a transactional mindset. We fast from a awareness and, an, and, a, and a resonance in our heart that something is not as it should be. So it's important that our motive, that we, for me, see, it's just helpful for me to have these two categories. What's my motivation for fasting? I get that settled, and, I, and that's, my, that's what's taking me into the fast. And then it's great, have prayer points. Have specific things you're gonna go in on and you're gonna ask God for as you fast. Someone to be healed, a, a breakthrough, a marriage, whatever. But if we fast to get something, that's actually witchcraft. That's manipulation. That's control. That's trying to pull a lever so that the heaven lever gets pulled and then it falls down or whatever, you know? Like, that's just not the, that's not the right um, mentality about fasting, is to fast to get something. We fast in response to something. And then we trust God no matter what we get or what we don't. So take that and run with it if it's helpful. Here's my motivation. Here's what I, here's what I wanna kinda like go in for and pray for, but this is not the thing that I'm fasting for, you know? Okay, definition of fasting. Will you put the slide up, Denise? 
This is really deep, guys. Not eating food. Okay? Uh, but then check out the context I'm putting it in. Definition of abstaining, not indulging in something. So it's helpful, I think, to think of fasting in context to abstaining. Lots of times we equate the two and we confuse the two and we interchange the two. When in reality, fasting is not eating food. Abstaining is not indulging in something. And they're both really powerful and helpful practices. And they're both key for, spirit, for followers of Jesus. But if we, if we kind of think like, oh, I'm going to fast social media, or I'm going to fast alcohol, or I'm going to fast um, whatever, we're actually just mixing categories. And so it's confusing, and it's not actually helpful for our spiritual growth if, we're not, if we don't have it accurately. So um, I'm going to unpack that more, but let me just give this disclaimer right now. If you have a medical condition, you should think seriously and talk to a physician before you fast. If you're a nursing mom, if you're pregnant, a whole bunch of other things I could list, fasting is not even something that's smart for you to do. It's not something God would want you to do. But if you're healthy and you wanna fast, and you wanna fast more than say three days, I would also say fall into that category of talk to a doctor, talk to your physician, or at least talk to someone who has more experience and practice in this discipline than you do so that you can get at it strong and you can get at it wisely. But let's look at the actual um, definition of the word fasting. This is from Adam Clark, a British Methodist theologian. Here's what he says. He knows Greek and I don't, okay? The Greek words for not and eat are used together to create the word fast. That's what the Greek word fast, that's where you get the word fast from not and eat, nes tuo, that's how, that's the Greek word for us, not eat, okay? Um, it, so basically that means that a fast is a total abstinence from food specifically, not eating. Now, we never see a biblical author or a biblical character call not eating meat or not drinking wine or not indulging in entertainment, we never see them call that fasting. In fact, they just don't call it anything. They just describe what they're doing. For instance, Daniel, in uh, chapter one, he abstains from everything except for vegetables and water for 10 days. And we've called that the Daniel fast. It might be more technically correct, sorry for all the amazing books that are written, the Daniel abstinence <laughs> period, or whatever, you know? It's great. It's good. I'm not trying to be like high and mighty and root and tootin and like, oh, that's not actually fasting. I just, we want to know what's actually biblical, right? Well, Daniel also fasted. He didn't eat food sometimes. In Daniel chapter 10, this is what it says. I ate, actually, I don't have the reference down. It's in chapter 9. And the Hebrew word is som, which, is which what that just means is to abstain from food. So again, what's my point? Not that um, anyone is stupid or silly for calling something a fast that's not. Not that we should be the fasting police and figure out and correct people. Oh, by the way, you're not actually fasting. That's not Daniel fast. I prefer you'd call that the Daniel abstinence period. Like, <laughs> that's not my point, okay? My point is just that 
I would like to imitate Jesus as well as possible. And I would like to imitate the heroes of this book as well as possible. So when Jesus talks about fasting, I don't wanna just be off social media <laughs> or just not eat dessert. I wanna do what Jesus did when he fasted, not eating food, okay? So let's dive into uh, Matthew now. Last week, Jamie Hazelmeyer down here gave an amazing message. Um, you would never think that this was her second time ever preaching to this room based off of her performance last week. It was so good. Thank you a lot, Jamie. And she's also a mother. Um, so something we can forget easily is that Matthew is a, the book of Matthew, it's a story. Okay, like it is successive scenes following each other. Not necessarily um, moment by moment, but the, the, at least what Matthew is trying to communicate to us is a narrative, a series of events about a person and that person's teachings. And so when Jamie tells her whole story last week and preaches her passage, we need to recognize that what I'm gonna preach today is basically happening at the same exact time as her story. It's not like Jamie's story about the Matthew the tax, tax collector, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, happened three weeks ago, and then five, then three weeks later, Jesus is approached about fasting. It, how, the, how the story tells it, it's like all happening at the same moment. In fact, in Luke's account, um, not only do John the Baptist disciples ask Jesus a question, but the Pharisees also ask Jesus a second question. So like, this is all one event, this is one story, okay? So Jamie's whole message was about Jesus choosing a traitorous government extortionist, AKA Matthew the tax collector, to be one of his followers and one of the successors of his ministry. So this is tantamount to Jesus walking up to Donald Trump or Joe Biden, take your pick, and saying, hey buddy, come follow me. And I want you to represent me and, and, and share my teachings. If Jesus did that, that's like the vibe for people that day when, when Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector. And the whole emphasis of the passage and what Jamie unpacked so well, I'd encourage you to listen to it, was about mercy and how the Pharisees had, they thought they had it all figured out. They thought we know how to follow uh, Yahweh. We know the right way to do it. And if we just follow him perfectly and we get everyone else to follow him perfectly, he's gonna come back and rescue us. And so we don't wanna associate with anyone that's not doing it perfectly. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I came for the people who aren't doing it perfectly. The people who are, think they're doing it perfectly won't even receive me. So I'm gonna go to the people who have it all messed up because they're at least probably open-hearted to me. And this whole interaction happens. And then John the Baptist, JTB, JTB, his disciples come up to Jesus and start questioning him. And Basically, John the Baptist, he's similar to the Pharisees in terms of intensity. And that's pretty much where the similarities stop, okay? Pharisees, for the most part, some of the Pharisees end up becoming Jesus' like core followers. And in Acts, it talks about tons and tons of Pharisees getting born again. And there were some really good Pharisees. But in general, the Pharisees are kind of like bad guys in the Gospels. Whereas JTB's followers, they're not bad guys. They're actually on a mission from God. Like, 
the Spirit told JTB, go baptize and command people to repent. And I want you to do that because I am coming. God told John the Baptist, I am coming. And when I come, you want to be on my side. And it's so merciful that God would do that. He's saying, hey, everyone, I want you to come into the family. That's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, God is loving. I'm showing you how loving God is. He's welcoming you into the family. Stop living your way and start living Yahweh. Come into the family. But when he comes, guess what? God's not cool with rape. God's not cool with trafficking, with drug overdose, with um, exploitation of children, with broken marriages, with all the brokenness, all the fallout <coughs> that, that happens in our evil world. God loves the people that are doing it, but he's giving them a chance right now to join his family. And at some point he's gonna come and he's gonna end all of it. And if you're a person who hasn't been born again, you're gonna be part of that. It's gonna be incredibly sad and horrible for you. And that's the message that John the Baptist comes with. So I'm just trying to say, he came with a, with a lot of intensity. Will you guys stand and uh, let's read the passage. You thought you were going to get out of standing. <laughs> then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Everyone say, then they will fast. Then they fast. Unfortunately, we live in the then. Um, 16, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Thanks. You can sit down. So let's, let's run through this passage, and I'll end with a, a charge and a clarity to us about the heart posture that we fast from. So we and the Pharisees fast often. A good question to ask would be, what do they mean by often? Well, we have three sources that I'm aware of that can uh, help us figure out what often means. First of all, this word right here, often, it means many, so more than once, okay? And then in Luke 18, 12, we find out that the Pharisees were known for fasting twice a week. It says it right there in Luke 18, 12. And then lastly, in the Didache, which is a ancient Christian document, it's kind of like the teachings of the apostles. Some people even think that Matthew wrote it because it's so similar to the book of Matthew and it's clearly targeted at Jews. But it, it isn't in the Bible. We don't believe it's inspired. But it was just like a helpful, reliable, old document about early followers of Jesus. Listen to what it says. Chapter 8 concerning fasts. Do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday. So you should fast on Wednesday and Friday. Get them good. Fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. You were, I was like... They fast on Tuesday and Thursday, so don't fast at all. So no one thinks you're a hypocrite. <laughs> That's how I do it. But what we should take from this, in all honesty, is number one, it was very common for the early church to fast. 
This was just typical standard protocol for the early church was the discipline of fasting. And what they would usually do would be fast from sunrise to sunset. They would not eat anything from sunrise to sunset. So you're getting up early and you're getting that breakfast in and then you're excited for winter time when the sun sets early and you're getting your dinner in. But number two, the hypocrites in the DDK, let's talk about the Pharisees. Jesus referred to them as the, the Pharisees as the hypocrites all the time. So let's look at verse 14. Or let's look at the, the second half of verse 14. We fast often, but your disciples do not fast. So what we should hear here is kind of like an accusation against them. And what the, what the John the Baptist's followers are saying is, look, we never see you fasting. If we're reading between the lines, I think that's what they're getting at. Everyone sees us fasting. We're doing it out in the desert and we're banging symbols on the side of the road to attract attention. But no, we don't ever see you guys fasting. In fact, you're always feasting. Like Jesus is at a feast right now. It says in Luke that he was uh, mistaken for a glutton and a drunkard because Jesus partied. He, he, he feasted so much. He knew how to have a good time with people. Obviously, in our culture, we associate partying with getting drunk. Definitely not. In Jesus', in Jesus worldview, he knew how to feast. And so people thought, well, he must have a very low perspective on fasting because he feasts so much. That's what I think is going on in the background in people's minds here. But we all know, we have the full story here, right? We all know that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus valued fasting so much that he kicked off his ministry with a 40-day fast. A 40-day fast. Uh, like a 40-day fast. I had lunch with someone this week who's done two 40-day fasts. I started to wash their feet immediately. I was like, please lay hands on me. Like, do you want my lunch? Are you still hungry? I know that happened like 20 years ago, but you probably want my lunch because like you went 40 days without food. And secondly, Jesus gives a whole teaching to his disciples on fasting. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you fast, fast in secret. When you fast, fast in secret. So this is why they didn't know that Jesus and his disciples valued fasting is because it wasn't time yet to fast. When you fast, I'm gonna get into that in a second. But then secondly, fast in secret. And I don't think that, me, I don't think that means don't ever tell anyone you're fasting. Don't ever let anyone know you're doing it. The heart there is don't be like the hypocrites who brag about it and who broadcast it. It's okay for people to know you're fasting. Just don't tell people to get recognition and to be known. So now let's read Jesus' entire response and we'll wrap up in 10 minutes. <laughs> Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So I think that there's three things that the Spirit of God is saying to our church right now through this passage. And I think incidentally that they're the same three things that Jesus was saying when he said to the John the Baptist's disciples and the same thing that Matthew was saying to his audience when he wrote it. Here are the three things. Number one, 
Fasting is not the appropriate response to the presence of Jesus. Feasting is. Number two, Jesus is intentionally connecting fasting to mourning. Not like mourning, but like, well, mourning. And number three, Jesus is saying that something has fundamentally changed about fasting in light of his coming. Something has fundamentally changed about fasting in light of his coming. So number one, fasting is not the appropriate response to the presence of Jesus. Feasting is. Listen to these scriptures and tell me if they sound more like they would lead you into feasting or fasting. I'm going to read you some scriptures. Tell me what your response is to them. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What's that sound like to you? Feasting, right? That's feasting. So hot take really quick. This may or may not be controversial. I don't know. I don't believe that Jesus' disciples fasted during his earthly ministry. And I think that Mark takes it a step further and makes it even more clear. Listen to how Mark says it, Jesus' words. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. So as long as Jesus was with the disciples, it wasn't fasting time. Number two, Jesus is intentionally connecting fasting to mourning. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast? How can they mourn while he is with them? So mourning. And then the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. That word taken, listen to what R.T. France says, and Liam Neeson backs this up as well. <laughs> the verb suggests a violent and unwelcome removal. That's what taken is saying here. Like when he gets dragged away from them to be crucified. How many think that might've been an appropriate moment to fast? And just think about like how you work physiologically. If you hear really bad news, do you simultaneously get incredibly hungry? No, it's the reverse. When you hear bad news, you lose your appetite. You're like, I couldn't eat if I tried. I feel like there's a brick in my stomach. See, fasting is a normal, natural response by human beings to the evil of this world and its collateral damage. Our body testifies about it. Here's how I'm learning to think about it. Fasting is whole body yearning and longing for the kingdom to come. This book has really helped me a ton here. Fasting by Scott McKnight. It's, and it's praying the prayer, God, I long for your beauty and justice and healing to reign supreme and to cover the earth. I long to see you face to face and for all things to be made new. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's praying that prayer, but with your stomach. It's praying that prayer, but with your body. Not your words, not your thoughts, not, not tongues. It's praying with your body. Here's Scott McKnight. Fasting for the church is a response to two sacred moments. Number one, 
the absence of Jesus. And number two, the recognition that this world is not what God intends it to be. Body hope responds to both of those by fasting. The absence of Jesus and the recognition that this world is not what God intends it to be. That naturally drives us into a place where we're so hungry for the kingdom to come in that we don't even want to eat. It, 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 it clarifies priorities. There is something I am more hungry for than food, and it's God's presence. It's God's justice. It's God's power. It's God's healing. It's God himself. Number three, Jesus is saying that something has fundamentally changed about fasting in light of his coming. That's the whole point of the two parables. You don't put new cloth on an old shirt. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. You don't put a CD into an iPad. You don't put gasoline into your Tesla. That just doesn't work. That's awesome if you have a Tesla, by the way. Um, that's, just not, that's not how it works. We don't use the old thing for the new thing. And so with Jesus coming, everything is fundamentally changed. There's a new world invading our world. That's the idea of the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It's saying that we live in earth's kingdom, Satan's kingdom, man's kingdom. It's broken, jacked, and messed up. Jesus came from another kingdom. He comes from another world and brings that world bursting into our world. That's what's happening when someone gets healed. That's what's happening when forgiveness is released. That's what's happening when a marriage is restored is the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign is bursting into our world. This graphic helps me visualize a little bit more. So we have this evil age, this red line. This is like a picture of how we can think about time, okay? So time started at creation where it's green. And then there was a fall, there was disobedience and brokenness got into the world and the red line started because red's always bad, right? So the red line, and we were born, we were red line people. We have red line bodies. We live in a red line world. But then the green guy came, Jesus. He came and he brought the green world into the red world. And then anyone that trusts in him becomes green. We become a green person now living in the red world. We still have all of our red experiences and our red body, but fundamentally, I am a green person. I'm a kingdom person. I was born from the kingdom age. I was reborn and now I'm living in the kingdom world, but I'm not of it. So when we understand this, put the second one up, please. When we understand this, then we have this paradigm that before Jesus, we were, it was all about anticipating the kingdom coming. It was all, I want the kingdom to come. I want the kingdom to come. But then Jesus came and we feasted. Jesus' presence, we feast. Now we're, it's the church time. We're fasting in hope of the kingdom coming again. And then when the kingdom is fully here and it, well, the kingdom is here, but when the kingdom of God takes over the kingdom of this world, you know, this world's gonna be renewed, it says. It's gonna be transformed, just like how we're being transformed. Then we'll feast again and we'll live feasting. Will you guys stand with me? And a prayer team, will you please come down to the front to pray for people? I'm gonna read that, the same quote I started with. One thing that distinguished early Christians from other groups who, from other groups who fasted was body hope. 
Christians fasted because they longed for Christ to return to establish the kingdom of God. Flattened into a generic category, their fasting is personal embodiment of hope. In other words, sometimes we yearn so much for what we know God wants for this world. Who can relate to that? And sometimes we become so depressed over what our world is like. Who can relate to that? In light of what God wants for us, that we are compelled to fast. Could I get some staff members to come be on the prayer team as well, please? Such fasting is body hope. And any leaders in the church who want to come pray. Such fasting is body hope. We embody our hope by protesting the present conditions of this world. We embody our hope by protesting the present conditions of this world. Father, give us grace to protest with our bellies. Give us grace to protest. Lord, will you fill us with more power as we protest? God, I want to go to a dead person and bring them back to life in your name for your glory so that they can go and bring a dead person back to life. <clears throat> God, give us strategies in this room to rescue people from trafficking. Give us strategies in this room to help the elderly feel like they're loved and, hope, and they have hope and joy. Lord, let your kingdom come and flow through our lives. And I just say, Lord, take me deeper in fasting. It's a scary prayer to pray. Take me deeper, God. And let everyone else who has that same heart, Lord, take them deeper. Teach us what it means. Teach us how to be separated and still love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, I hope you have an amazing rest of your Mother's Day. Don't you dare eat lunch. I'm going to be watching you. <laughs> Come on down for prayer if you'd like.